I guess we had the B string last week, and I'm the C string this week. <laughs> Thankfully, the A team will be back next week, and we're all so glad to have you back, too. So, uh, glad you're here. Um, so, you know, Todd got to speak on love this last week, and so he was like, hey, why don't you speak on tongues this week? So, uh, so <laughs> no, we decided that together, but that's the straw I drew. I want to start off with just an experience of mine. I was a young believer, uh, just became a believer, as a matter of fact, that year. And uh, there was a lot of hoopla in the church I was a part of when I became a believer because I was a crazy drug addict that all of a sudden became a believer in Jesus and my life had changed radically. And I was impressed with myself as others were. Um, <laughs> I was impressed by Jesus too, but both of those exist simultaneously right alongside one another. Uh, as is the case, uh, often to in varying degrees. Uh, well, I, I, in, in my zealousness for Jesus and for me, uh, I used to go and work with homeless people. And I'd go out and hang out with them and spend time with them and share what I knew of the gospel with them. And I was going to go on a mission trip to Honduras. This was 1998, uh, right after Hurricane Mitch. And... Uh, I was pretty excited and feeling pretty spiritual. I was fixing to go on a mission trip, you know. So I was one of those sent ones. And uh, so I was hanging out with one of these uh, homeless gentlemen, and uh, he was like, hey, you got to meet, and I don't even remember her name. I'll call her Kathy. You got to meet Kathy. She's a prophetess, and she speaks in tongues. She's really, really spiritual. And I felt a little offended by that because I kind of thought I was pretty spiritual. After all, I was a missionary. So I wanted to go meet who this Kathy was. Uh, and I was intrigued, you know. A prophetess that speaks in, speaks in tongues, that'll be interesting. So I went, and what I did find about Kathy was she was very kind. She allowed the gentleman I was with to shower and things of that nature. And I spent some time with her, and she was a little different. Uh, a little different. Um, being so young in the faith, I didn't know how to really evaluate that. But I'll never forget the last thing that happened. She said, well, of course, I had to tell her about how I was going on a mission trip and all because it was a very big deal. And uh, she goes, well, I want to pray for you. And she waited for the gentleman to get out. And he went on and on about how spiritual she was. I was like, okay. So we, we stood together to pray. And she was like, oh, Lord, you know, I pray for Jason and for his mission trip. And I remember sitting there with my eyes closed thinking, what in the world is going on? And she continued to do that for a while. And then said, amen. I was like, well, amen. And then she goes, and I've got a prophecy for you. Okay. She goes, I see you entering in. I'm going to be moving around a lot, so I'm going to take it easy here. I see you entering into countries and just being like, and I was kind of waiting like, that was the prophecy. I was like, well, okay, I got you. And I'll tell you, that really colored how I might look at prophecy or tongues. Uh, and I'll tell you, the place I was at, which is, a home church for me, and I'm very much endeared to it and has some amazing qualities to it as a church. Um, and, and mentors that I've had who I have the highest esteem for, and they've meant so much to me. But I also learned along the way this concept of spiritual gifts. And, of course, those are all gone. Those, that's, that's baloney. There's none of that. But you do have a spiritual gift. You need to figure out what it is so that you can be fulfilled and have purpose in life. You know? That's, that's why you need to do it. So I've always had this great urgency with needing to find my spiritual gifts. And, and uh, at one time I started teaching a lot, and so my spiritual gift must be teaching. And so I went around looking for opportunities to teach, because apparently that's the only way God wanted to use me. And it happened to get me a lot of attention, which worked really well also. Uh, two agendas served simultaneously, as it were. Um, and I felt pretty spiritual, and others who sat lower than me as I spoke thought I was pretty spiritual too. So, uh, 
those were my experiences of spiritual gifts. And that's the way I've come to know them. And I've had to really work against that uh, over the years. And I'm, I'll be sharing several stories with you throughout. Um, wow, Todd, you were right. Didn't even take too much time, but appreciated that about the memorial and about this church family. Very encouraging. So, Todd's been preaching through 1 Corinthians, which has been a great impact to me, and I know many of you as well, as we're looking at a year in review. Uh, it's been a great time in God's Word, and we find if the Corinthians a people very much like ourselves in this culture. Uh, some of the things uh, that were distinctive for the Corinthians is they had taken on values of their world. Uh, and with, amongst themselves, they were competing for prominence, which was very common in their culture. Uh, and they were even practicing uh, much of the same immorality that was going on there. Uh, we also have come to find that the good of the other was really subordinated to the good for me that I was seeking. The good for me and the good for mine. Um, and that good for me is perceived by me, and you're not allowed to speak into that. So I'm the one that determines the good for me. Their culture also, their priorities and practices were um, self was the ultimate value, which this is very parallel to our culture that's individualistic, where the self rules supreme. The things I desire, the vision for myself, uh, the things I pursue are things for me, because I take care, if everybody will just take care of themselves, we'll all be good, right? And, and that's kind of the, the way that the Corinthians were thinking. Um, and so what they had to do, because the Scriptures don't really speak uh, in those terms, really. And so what they had to do was start to validate themselves by creating new categories to evaluate spirituality. So, ready? Here, here's some new categories that the Corinthians were creating so that in order that they could validate themselves in the practice that they had. One of them was just staying out of others' business, you know. Um, that way I don't have to say anything to anybody. I'll just stay out of their business, and that'll be a value. And even if my brother is in sin or immorality, I won't say anything to them because I'm embracing the value of just staying out of other people's business. That sounds like a good thing. Another one was personal rights, you know. I have personal rights and preferences, and those are very important, and therefore, um, I'm not going to submit to other members in the body or the leadership. Uh, we'll just take it to courts, and I can be validated for being right, because that's the most important thing. That's my right. My right is that I can always be right and justify the things that I do. Um, Another one's personal distinction and individuality. This was how they raised themselves over and above others was by, by showing ways that they were distinctive and ways that uh, in their individuality they were a little bit better and they really cared about the pecking order. It was very, very important, and I know we don't do that. Um, but I'll say there are some who have done that uh, with things such as denominations or doctrinal distinctions, Right? Uh, they're Arminian, we're Calvinist. And these over here go, don't forget about us, we're Emeraldians. And everybody's going, what in the world's that exactly? And who cares, right? We're pre-trib, we're post-trib, we're amill, we're pre-mill, we're this, we're that. We believe in continual, in, in, we're continualists who believe in the continuation. of. Well, we're cessationists and they've all stopped, or at least some of them have. And, and we care a lot about these distinctions so we can figure out where we are. And guess where you always end up? I'll tell you, in the superior position. Every time, everyone, I assure you, you're in the superior position. Now, not that those things aren't important. Our beliefs are very important. It's what we're doing with them and why we're doing it, right? That, it's the heart behind it. Uh, Todd, in, in, in a meeting that uh, we were having and discussing theology, we were discussing these types of things, and he said something I'll never forget because it's my favorite quote on issues such as this. He said, you know, you would think we might start with the thing or the one 
in whom we are all united. You'd think you'd start with Christ and work from there. Well, I'll tell you the problem with that. If we started with Christ, we'd start off with one who is high above all others, and we would all be equal. <laughs> and that wouldn't really work so well, because at the end of the day, I want to take my beliefs and whatever I have and raise them up over yours as one who is superior in knowledge and understanding. So that would be very important to me. Um, well, this was not unlike the Corinthians, uh, though, and it would manifest even in their beliefs, right? I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Well, it, as we come to a, towards uh, further on in this book, we come to see it even comes in gifts. Uh, the ones that are more ecstatic and, and crazy, they elevate themselves up as more spiritual, another way to distinguish themselves from another, from those who are lesser. Uh, they also really valued personal freedom, and they would exercise their personal freedoms to the detriment of other brothers and sisters and not mind at all whatsoever because this was their new value that they were going to uphold personal freedoms and they had rationalized them in all kinds of ways and and put forth all kinds of knowledge it caused other people to stumble and didn't really matter because what mattered was my personal freedoms um and they also had kind of this personal practices or standards for spirituality they had standards that were personal and uh, so that whatever defining expression of spirituality I had, that was the highest. That was the best. And we'll judge all others according to that standard, which happens to be me. The great thing about that is I always win in this game. Um, Dr. Hannah, a professor I have great, great respect for, had been working in the church for 40 years. And uh, sweet, sweet man. And he said, you know... The greatest trouble I've seen in the church in 40 years of ministry is this. So listen close. Everyone's looking in a mirror and they think they see Christ. And so all of their greatest attributes, all their greatest strengths, they uphold as the most noble, the greatest, and the best. Things that are weaknesses, well, they're not really that important. And then, they don't just stop there. They walk around examining others according to those same standards. And they might even call that same standard that, that is them and the embodiment of them, at least as they see, Christ-likeness. And so these are things that the Corinthians were struggling with. Uh, they upheld tongues in this case, is a superior expression of personal spirituality. They saw it as a gift that God had given them to authenticate how spiritual they really were. So it was an authentication of their spirituality. And, uh, and really, they kind of expected that everybody would recognize it as the same. I speak in tongues. Obviously, this is a gift that God's given. Obviously, that's because I'm a little more spiritual than you. So... Here's where we are, the tongue speakers, and here's where you guys are, all the others. Um, and so this was the Corinthians, and this is what they're dealing with. And, and really what we came to see as it culminated in chapter 13 is this. The thing that was behind all of that was this, a lack of love. These were merely symptoms of a very deep-seated, dark, very pagan, unchristian thing. And that's a lack of love. It was a concern for self with no regard for others. They were devoid of love. And so we see Paul is addressing this in chapters 12 through 14. And he's really asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? How are Christians to exercise their spiritual gifts in the church? In chapter 12, Paul focuses on the unity of the body, of the body and the diversity of the gifts that the Spirit gave according to whose will? Well, it wasn't according to our merit. It wasn't according to our preferences. It was according as He willed. He gave gifts. And He gave them for a reason. And by the way, it wasn't your personal fulfillment or purpose. The reason He gave gifts was for the common good of all the body. That's why He gave gifts. In a contemporary perspective, we might say, uh, you got to find your gift and use it. Find it and use it. 
So you, the possessor of it, can wield it to have personal significance and purpose. Does that sound like a, you might not have heard it here, but that's a contemporary understanding of the way gifts work. Well, Paul proceeds to a more excellent way. He says, listen, the way that you need to go is the way of love. And oftentimes, I like this because I've spent a lot of time on this subject, and it might be a way that I get superiority over others. I don't know. But I'll ask this question. What's love? I don't do the song, you know. What is love? I'm not going to sing. But I'll ask the question. And, And inevitably, I usually get three answers. Either no answer at all, which is the most common. The next one would be kind of a stumbling around and go, sacrifice. Okay. Uh, or they'll, they'll quote 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 to me, right? So just listen to this as a definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecoming, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account of wrong suffer, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, well, that's a lot of knots for a definition. <laughs> but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I always respond, those are great verses. So what does love mean? <laughs> and then they respond like the first ones do. They don't say anything. Um, because that doesn't really define it. Actually, what Paul's doing is addressing great deficiencies that reveal their lack of love. And so that's what he's doing. He does define love, though. Um, and, and I'm gonna, and it's, it's a simple definition that we're going to get to, but I, I do want to point this out in, within the concept of love. This is apparently a pretty big deal, probably bigger than tongues. Um, God is love. The great commandment we've been given is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. And Jesus comes and says, I give you another commandment that you would love one another in the church. Those are the great commandments. The great commission You're like, well, that doesn't have love in it. Yeah, you're right. Teach those who are baptized to obey all that God has commanded. Oh, that's right, love. Okay, so it does. To teach them to obey all that God has commanded. Discipleship is about teaching people how to love as Christ has loved them. That's what discipleship's about. At its very essence, that's what it is. The more excellent way, Paul says, is what? Love. Faith, hope, and love. Which one's the greatest? Love. So what is love? I mean, if we're going to pursue this, if we're going to evaluate our motives and those expressions of love that we have, certainly we need to know what it is. Well, Paul's been defining it throughout all of 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's been the prevailing theme throughout this book. This is what it is. I'm pulling these straight from verses. Love edifies the other. Let no one seek for his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Also, I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. To, teach one is, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you, hear, do you hear the resounding theme there? Here it is. Love is when one being, and I say a being because God loves. So I don't want to say one human being, but one being seeks the good or the edification or the profit of another. That's what love is, quite simply. That's pretty easy, isn't it? It's not a complex answer. Uh, If I'm seeking the profit of another, I'm going to be the one that I might call the lover. I'm the one seeking to love, and they're the beloved. They're the one I'm seeking to love. All right? So a couple, at least two parties in this love relationship. All right? As the, and now, as, now, we're all brothers, and so we're called to love one another, right? And to be the beloved of one another. Is that correct? We all love each other and receive the love the others give for us, right? That's what we do in, in the brotherhood, okay? And so, as the lover, we seek to elevate, to edify, to profit. We seek the good of other people. As the beloved, you know what we do? We submit to one another in all the fear of Christ, so as, Paul, as, as Todd seeks my good, and it's hard for me, he'll tell you. You know what I have to do? I have to submit myself to him and promote that good he's seeking on my behalf. That doesn't feel very good a lot of times, I'll tell you right now. It doesn't feel very good at all. 
but it is good. And it's God's intentions. It's part of how he sanctifies us. So that's what love is, and that's what should drive the Corinthians, but it's not. Love of self is driving them. So they have these gifts that are for themselves, that promote themselves and make themselves bigger and better. That's what they do. Well, this brings us to 1 Corinthians 14. Tongues. (laughs) I need to define tongues, I think. Uh, Because there's a lot of difference on what tongues are. And I'll tell you this too. There can be difference on what tongues are. That's fine with me. But I want to define just coming from this text. And I'm coming from this text. What tongues are. It's the problem child in Corinth. And probably a little bit even in our culture. Maybe from both sides of the argument. Uh, What's undeniable though. And this is clear in the text. That tongues are a natural part of Christian experience. That's a take a big swallow on that one. Uh, and not an experience everyone has, both. I will say this about it too. Whatever your conclusions are about tongues, they're going to be primarily formed in these three chapters in the Scriptures. And I'll tell you why. Because they're mentioned 21 times in chapters 12 through 14, and nowhere else in all of Paul's writings, which that ought to clue you on to a couple of things. If you're not speaking in tongues, it's probably okay, first of all. Not that big a deal. Um, and as a matter of fact, it was only brought up here because of their misuse. Paul really had no other reason to bring it up. It was the only reason he brought it up, which is why you're not going to see it in his vision of what the Christian life is, which you never see him portraying that as part of his vision of the Christian life. Although there is something that he does continually portray in his vision for the Christian life. What do you think that might be? How about that? It is. It starts with the love of God in Christ and the way that that's been given to us through His Spirit. That love that seeks our good, that seeks to raise us up in all maturity to all the fullness of Christ. Not necessarily individually, together. You're His means in which He does that. Are you starting to see connections here through these gifts and love and what God is doing here among us? This is the way he's accomplishing that. Well, love is in every single one of Paul's letters. And it's actually kind of what everything builds up to. So all that Christ has done, all that he is, all that we are now because of him. And now here's the application. Ready? Love. There you go. And Paul's like, all right, that's all for me. Y'all have a good one. Next book. And if you'll read all his books, you'll notice they follow pretty much the same pattern. He'll address different issues, but he has a very specific formula. Christ, everything he did and what you were before, what you are now become of, because of him, and now who we are all together and what we need to be doing, loving one another. That's pretty much his formula. And the great hope that we have that would make us persevere. I don't want to cut that off at the end because it's usually always there. So love, so that is a big deal. And you know what? In this chapter, you might want to hear all about tongues, but I'll tell you this, the bigger deal is love even in this chapter, not tongues. And it's the point that he's making throughout all of this chapter. So, a few things about tongues. They are an actual language. Uh, Language is the most natural meaning of the word glossa that they're using for tongues. Uh, And it also best explains how they can be differentiated in different kinds, which we see in 1228. Just going through a quick little accounting of what they are here. Uh, The phrase, phrase tongues of men and angels in 13.1 really only refers to a kind of language, tongues of men and of angels. They're specific languages. Um, in 14.21, Paul understands, he quotes Isaiah 28.11 through 12, and he makes reference to strange, to, to strange tongues, which are foreign language, languages. Well, he's using this as an analogy for the tongues being spoken at Corinth. Well, guess what? That analogy is about real languages, uh, these are real languages. Um, so that's the first thing. They're actual language. It's an actual language. Second thing, he understands these utterances to be addressed to God. Tongues are about, it is addressed to God. It's not to men. He makes that very specific, uh, 14, 2, 14, and 28, and that it's not to humans, 14, 2, 6, and 9. So tongues are addressed to God, not to men. That's what they're for. 
Uh, he also notes that, uh, and, and there's a lot of debate here, but it might not be a language of normal human discourse. And there's some reasons why, but it's definitely something mysterious and other to whoever's there experiencing it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it consists of mysteries in the spirit that are unintelligible to humans, 14.2, and that benefit only the speaker, 14.4. Uh, it communicates with God through prayer and praise in ways human speech does not. Does not, excuse me. Uh, as such, Paul only uses the gift in private. So that's how he uses it. He uses it in private. Why? Because it's him speaking to God. Why would he come to you before you and speak to God? To you. That would be really weird. Point number three, the rational mind seems not to be engaged when speaking in tongues. Now that doesn't mean they've lost control. That doesn't mean because the rational mind is not engaged that, that all of a sudden it just overtakes me and I start speaking in tongues. And the reason I know that is because um, they're called to regulate tongues in 14, 28, and 29. If, 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 uh, if I've got a haverdink out of control speaking tongues down here and I'm supposed to regulate them and they're completely irrational and can't, and can't stop, well then that, that's a pretty impossible commandment for me to do, to regulate and go, hey, haverdinks, settle down over here. Unless Mark's going to interpret, nope, okay, well, y'all are done. So just cut that off. Um, so they do have control, but the rational mind is not engaged. I want you to think about for a moment. I want to think, if you've ever stayed and just prayed for a long time, think about the feelings you have as you're praying kind of maybe euphoric a little bit, very peaceful, very calm, sometimes very emotive. Uh, these are the ways that this speaking in tongues, these are the feelings that that would have evoked. Um, they're vocalized in prayer, 14, 2, 14 and 28, singing praise and perhaps maybe even the size too deep from words of Romans, Romans 8. So, Imagine tongues is more of an expression. Actually, I've never spoken in tongues before personally. I have friends and even mentors who have. They've, they've prayed in tongues. I have no reason to doubt them. They definitely didn't make a big deal about it. And I'll tell you this at the end of the day, I'm no the lesser because I haven't, nor are they the greater because they have. And their explanation to me was, Felt euphoric, felt good, a lot like praying or a really intense time of corporate singing and worship. Uh, and it was edifying to them. Well, that's great. Now, I'll tell you this too. Upon hearing that, I've not gone out to pursue speaking in tongues. I don't know why I would, but I haven't. Um, and I don't think that I'm the lesser for it. And once again, nor that they're the greater. So here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to say... That can't happen, and I'll tell you why I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that because that's like me telling God, you don't get to do that, God. And I'm going to take a few steps back before you hear me say that. And I'm going to say, Lord, you may do as you will, and I'm fine with that. Um, I don't feel compelled to have to do it. I definitely don't think it needs to be taught. Uh, you don't see that anywhere. Uh, you just see it happening from time to time, and it's not that big a deal. Uh, we've made a big deal of it, and I'll tell you why I would want to make a big deal of it. Because me, passively speaking in a tongue, is pretty easy compared to me sacrificially laying down my life to love others. If I had to choose between those, I'm like, Lord, give me tongues. How about that? I would love tongues. That other one sounds very costly. That other one sounds very difficult. Um, and likely this is the case with the Corinthians. Why choose tongues? doesn't really require anything of me other than me to do it and lift myself over and above the rest of everyone else. So what about prophecy? So there's tongues. You get a sense of tongues? What about prophecy? What is prophecy? You know, we could look, there's one kind of prophecy that is speaking God's actual words in which there needs to be somebody writing those things down so they can go in the Bible. That's happened already. Here we have it. 
and there's a, there's a back cover that closed that book, and it's closed, and it's complete, and we're good with that. There's another kind of prophecy, a declaration of God's will to his people. Uh, some would say this is foretelling the word of God. Prophecy would be foretelling that word into the lives and circumstances of the people who you're around. It would be the correct application of that word and the will of God into the specific lives of people. That would be what prophecy is. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, the prophet knows something of the divine mysteries. Divine mysteries revealed here. Divine mysteries told of here. He knows something of those. And he declares a word of revelation. Here's the word of revelation. And he declares that word of revelation which Paul regards as the most important gift for community worship. Hey, we regard it that way also, consequently. It need not consist only of a disclosure of future events, though that happens. Agabus in Acts, in chapter 11 and chapter 21, tells forth things that he sees happening. Um, How do I make an account for that? Well, I'll tell you this, Agabus wasn't the only one the Spirit was telling Paul within in him what was going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. So were all the other believers. Do you know why? You ever heard the expression, the writing was on the wall? The writing was on the wall. It was obvious. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. That's what's going to happen. They're going to bound you. They're going to put you in prison. That's what's going to happen. Well, Agabus, Agabus was a prophet, and he said this is what was going to happen, and it happened. But typically what it's doing is addressing a contemporary situation in ways that bring encouragement, in ways that bring comfort, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.3, that brings others under conviction, 14.25, and that summon them to repentance, Revelation 11.3. This is what a prophet's doing. Sounds like the ministry of the word, doesn't it? Well, that's what it is. Now, Since Christians understand Joel 2, 28 through 29, which we find in Acts 2, about the Spirit being poured out on all the sons and daughters, young men and old men, slaves, men and women, and them all prophesying, we believe this, all may prophesy. Right? The Spirit's being poured out on all all of us in full, and this is part of that prophecy of Joel is that um, now that you possess the Spirit, you may prophesy. You might, you ready? Here, I'll, I'll put it in other terms for you. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you, you now have a possibility of speaking the truth in love. How about that for prophecy? You are able to speak forth the Word of God and the truth of that Word into a very specific application to a person or people that would be the in love in order to edify and build them up. There's prophecy. Clear on that one? Not crazy? Tons of scripture back that up? Not uh, some weird? Now, there is the other. But this is what we see primarily in, in, in the New Testament. This is the expression of prophecy we see. An expression of foretelling God's word for the edification of a particular people in a particular culture. So, we've got some definitions out of the way. Let's look at the text. 1 Corinthians 14. Are you all ready? Here we go. And the major application comes in the first verse. So I'm just going to read it and we'll come back to it later. Here's the major application. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, this context is corporate worship. So can you imagine, I just want you to think for a minute with me. Paul's actually really ridiculing this. Tongues are speaking to God and not men, and they're for personal edification. Now, why would you do that in a corporate gathering? Prophecy, on the other hand, is speaking to men. 
and women for their edification, for exhortation, to build them up. Which one is the one that belongs in a place of a corporate gathering? It's so obvious, it's silly. And that's really Paul's point. This is kind of silly. Have y'all thought about this at all? Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So, by the way, what is he not saying? Don't. No, he's saying, I wish you did. Not really making a big deal out of it either. Wish you all spoke in tongues. But even more, so actually what he's doing is reversing their values. So he's, he's playing to them. I wish you all spoke, but even more, the greater one, all the Corinthians lean in close. <gasps> yes. That you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. You see what he did? He just shifted their whole values upside down. Greater is not the one speaking tongues for the edification of himself before everybody else. Better is the one speaking the truth of God for edification to the body. That's the one that's better. That's the one that's to be preferred. Unless, of course, uh, the one who speaks in tongues has an interpreter that the church may receive edifying. So here's the principle. What's the overriding principle? The one that's better is the one that does what? Edifies. That's the one that's better. The one that builds up the church. The one that promotes love and edification. That's the better one. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, and he's using language he used at the very beginning of this book, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? So do you remember how he did not come to them in the beginning of Corinthians? I didn't come to you with wise speech and all this clever speech, but I determined to know only one thing among you. Do you remember what it was? Christ and Him crucified. That's what I came to declare to you. And He did it in simple speech. Why? Because He wanted them to understand. And what He's saying is this. What if I had come to you and just spoke tongues? Corinthians, what would have happened then? Probably not their acceptance of Christ and Him crucified, I guarantee you. So He's saying, what would have happened if I came to you speaking in tongues? No, he came to speak about Christ. He came and spoke instead revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. That's what he came and spoke. And it was to their edification. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? I'm going to play a little song for you guys today. You ready? See if you can name, we're going to play name that tune. Are you all ready? Mark's looking at me like, you're nuts, bud. Here we go. What was that song? What? Darn it, that didn't work. Here, let me do another song. You might not have all gotten it. Yeah. That felt like an indictment. So, that's what Paul's saying. If there aren't a distinction of, of tone, they won't know what song you're playing. Now Jerry's finally going, all right, I get it. Because I told him, I just need one key. I need to play a song. He's like, okay. <laughs> Good luck with that song. <laughs> So it was Jingle Bells, by the way. Uh, but you know what? What he's saying is you need the distinction of tones to recognize what it is, just like in words. They're not just sounds. They're specific sounds that are put together specifically to portray ideas so you know what it is. That's the point. Verse 8, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So, I don't know what a battle cry for a bugle sounds like, and I'm not going to do it today. But I will tell you this. I was just in Mexico City with Mark Hardy, and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear weird sounds coming down the street. I was just talking to Josiah about it. I hear a bell ringing all the way down the street. I'm like, what's the bell? Well, that's trash. Well, I wouldn't have known that. Or I hear an air horn out. Well, what's the air horn? Well, that's gas. Well, I wouldn't have known that. Very specific sounds that prompted people to know 
this is how I respond to that sound. I get my trash and I bring it out to them so they can sift through it and decide what to throw away and what not to. I need gas. I need to bring out my gas tank out there so I can change out my gas. Well, those sounds prompted that. And here's, here's Paul's rationale. If you don't speak in a way that can be understood, how will the people respond rightly? They won't. so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Barbarian. Has anybody ever seen Charlie Brown? Do you remember when Charlie, when I don't know if it's Linus, whoever, is sitting in, or anybody who's sitting in a classroom, how does the teacher speak? Very good. Very good participation, by the way. They wonk, 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 right? Well, let me tell you about the word barbaros. Do you know what the word barbaros comes from? It comes from the sound that a Greek hears when someone's speaking another language. To them, it doesn't sound like the teacher, wonk, 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 wonk. You know what it actually sounds like? It's, it's onomatopoetic is what it's called. Bar, 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 bar. Barbaros, those who speak in a different language. If I come speaking like that, guess what? I'll be a barbarian to them and they to me. Because all we hear is, well, I'll tell you what we hear. I was in a Mexican Bible study. Me and Mark got to sit in. How long was that study, Mark? Forever? It might have been. I guarantee you it was close to eternity. (laughs) And it didn't feel like I went to the good place either, I'll tell you that. Because do you know what I heard for hours? Well, no, it sounded more like this. That's what it sounded like to me. Do you know how much I was edified by that? None. I kept looking at Mark pleading like, can we just go, Mark? And he was looking back at me the same way. No, but I'd like to. And it was for three hours. But yeah, and, and you know, I tried all the things when I introduced myself to him. You know the things we try? Speak slower and louder. I'm Jason. It's like, uh, great. That'll help. We were barbarians to each other. We couldn't understand each other. There wasn't an ability to edify one another through words. That wasn't a possibility in that scenario. And that's Paul's real point. Since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, he says in 12, seek to abound for the edification of the church. If you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to edify the church. That's what they're there for. Verse 13, therefore, let no one who speaks in a tongue pray, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Consequently, I want to give you an idea of what this might be like. There's some contemporary music today that we do in worship uh, actually we don't do it in worship there are others who do that is real emotive it's about the music and we might say three words over and over for five minutes and be like oh that worship was so powerful i mean it just welled up within me all kinds of emotions which i, I think is fine i'm not gonna i'm not gonna downplay that like praise the lord i think that's great But for me, I would rather be stirred in that way but have my mind active in those words that I'm reading. When I read, which was my favorite hymn, by the way, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all, that's our great hope. In this fallen world is the coronation of our king. I want those words to sink into my heart. I don't just want to be taken away by a coronation anthem. I want the reality of King Jesus who's going to take his throne 
and all of us with all the throng of angels celebrate, I want that to penetrate my mind and my heart and to transform me. That's really Paul's point here. I don't just pray in the Spirit. I pray with my mind too. It's both of those together. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen, or, or may it be at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I got asked to come join in corporate prayer several times in Mexico. Another awkward situation. Sitting there while people pray in Spanish. Going, should I bow my head? What am I doing? Then I'm just like, forget it. I'm just going to pray <laughs> to the Lord myself. And I'm standing by them. That's cool. But I kept having to look up to see if they looked up. Because I didn't know if they said, I didn't know when to say the amen. <laughs> you know? We always give clues like, in the Jesus name. Everybody goes, amen. Okay, well, that was, well, I didn't know the clue words. So I'm looking up like, when do I say the amen? I wouldn't know what I'd be saying, uh, Lord, let it be too. <laughs> I wouldn't know. That's his point. You need to be engaged with your mind also because this is about the edification of the people. He finally says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, which is not a position of pride, by the way. He's just saying, I'm not diminishing this. I'm thankful that I speak more than all of you in tongues. However, in the church, in this place where we gather, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct, instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue, which 10,000 was the largest number in Greek, in the Greek alphabet. So, so I'd rather, rather than speak all the words that you can imagine in a tongue, I'd rather speak five of them that profit the body. That's his preference. So, that's tongues. Um, I do want to look at some practical applications of that, though, that I think is good. I told you the beginning verses were really the application for the whole chapter. And that's this. Pursue love. Pursue love. We can be tempted in a culture that holds up our personal self-actualization as the highest thing to be pursued. We go to school all our lives for it. We pursue our jobs for it. We pursue our wives for it. We pursue our neighborhoods for it. To kind of self-actualize of the vision we have for ourselves. Just stop. This isn't that game. This isn't that game. This is a different economy altogether. We're not seeking for ways to self-actualize, to find purpose and fulfillment and significance in the church. What we're actually seeking to do is what Christ has done for us. We're seeking to lay our lives down for the good, for the edification, for the love of others. Pursue that. That's what you need to pursue. You don't have to worry about what your gifts are. You don't have to worry about this, that, or the other. The only thing you need to concern yourself with is how I might best love these, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That really simplifies things a little bit, doesn't it? And you might be going, but what about the gifts? I mean, what about the gifts? I want to tell you a little story about me again. It won't be very endearing, just like the last one. So I have this gift of teaching, right? So I'm a teacher. Never mind Jesus says, call no one teacher. I'm a teacher, okay? Because I've got the gift of teaching. I get to wield this gift the way I want. And I get to feel indignant if I don't get to. And I feel like I have a right to. Because I've got that gift. And I'll call it something spiritual. I'll say it's a stewardship. Right? I've got to steward that gift. So I've got to find a way for me to have a place to do that. I just heard, eh, wrong, okay. But hey, and this isn't a long time ago, guys. This is of recent. I fight these battles now. Todd's over there going, man, that's a little early to be sharing that one, Jason. Well, it's just a reality, and I want you to know it for your own edification, that that's not the way. And it produced in me all kinds of selfishness, 
it produced in me all kinds of pride, all kinds of victim mentality of how I'm not and how I'm not being valued, I'm not this, I'm not that. You know what? It was the wrong perspective altogether. The only thing I needed ever to concern myself with was guess what? How to seek the good of others. And what I'd done is I'd lost track and I started seeking my good. Oh, but I'll say it's for Jesus. And believe me, I can rationalize that till the cows come home. It's just not true. It's just not true. That's why Paul says, pursue love. He didn't say pursue spiritual gifts. Now, did he? No. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Now, that's an interesting thing, too. What is a spiritual gift that you should earnestly desire it? Because if the gift is something I possess and wield, why do I need to desire it? I got given these right when I became a believer, and now I wield them as I want. Oh, for His glory. Yeah, whatever. So what is a spiritual gift that you should earnestly desire it? What does that mean? D.A. Carson says this, and I tend to agree, we must really take caution institutionalizing gifts. Just because you've been gifted, I'm going to use one like healing. Just because, let's say you were gifted to heal somebody. That doesn't make you a healer. You shouldn't go open up a healing ministry because you wield the gift of healing. The gift was that you were able to heal this person in this place at that time. What a great gift of God. But we go, well, that's healing, but this is teaching, the one I have, and I wield it. Probably not. Probably not probably a little more consistent to that kind of experience so for example a teaching i'll tell you it's an example for me you know how i know it's a gift because i'm doing it right now and there might be some of you being built up and edified by the spirit of god praise the lord for that gift but guess what i don't get to walk away from him and go i'm the teacher now and i wield that gift not so much now i thought that way before when i was younger i used to teach before large crowds and I was too young to know that wasn't a good thing. Thousand students every week on Tuesday. I was pretty cool. They put it on TV sometimes. Man, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. Yeah, I'm a teacher. Until the leadership changed. And guess how much I taught then? Yep. And I really thought he was an idiot. I would, I would retract that statement now for sure. I think he probably had great wisdom and discernment, to be honest. And I went around looking for these places where I can wield this gift of teaching once again. Now, who's that all about? I didn't say it's for the Lord, but I know, I know better. If it was for the Lord, I would go about seeking to see others that I could build up and edify in Christ. That's what I would be pursuing. I'd be pursuing love if it was about Christ, just as he did me. Now, Christ was a healer, right? Or he healed people. Did he heal everybody who was sick that he came in contact with? No. Matter of fact, in John 17, you know what he actually says? He says this, Father, I've done all the work you've given me to do. Now, does that sound more like the definition of gifts that I just gave? As the Spirit endowing you with something for a moment, for a person, for a time to bless him. Now, there's some differences. I'll tell you some differences. The elders of this church that I believe the Holy Spirit of God works through, quite despite them or anybody in this church, because of his own goodwill and his love for us, they actually laid hands on one and said, you are going to be a teaching pastor. And I believe the Spirit of God honors that and gives Todd the gift of teaching every week when he stands up here. Now, I don't think he gets to wield it the way he wants because I'll tell you what, you know what will happen if he did something and he no longer had that platform? That gift's not there either every week. The gift are the opportunities that God gives by the power of his spirit. So what would you pursue if that's the case? Love. You'd pursue love. Now, there are things that God gives us to do more often than others. And he does tend to use our experiences. I mean, Bezalel, he was a crafter of all kinds of, of metal and wood and everything else. And, and the Holy Spirit of God called him out. And you ready? 
gave him gifts. Well, wait, he already had all those gifts. No, no, you know what the gift was? That he led the building of the tabernacle. That was the gift. The gift are the eternal things that through the Spirit of God we do unto God that make up a, a crown in the end. And guess what we do with that crown? Because if it was your gift to wield as you wanted, you know what you should do with that crown? You should wear it and parade around for the great work that you've done in Christ's name. But that's actually not what we do. And we don't do it because the Spirit of Christ lives in us, willing and acting according to His purpose and bearing fruit for the kingdom, not your fruit, His fruit. And that's why you take your crown of all those great deeds that were done in the Spirit at the end, and Yvonne Courtney's over there smiling because she's excited to do it one day, aren't you? And you throw it at the feet of Jesus and say, to you, all is due. Why? Because they were his great works is why. They weren't yours. And so what do we pursue? It's very, it's, it's very obvious at this point. What would you pursue? You would pursue love. Now, there is some preference in gifts, right? He does say, but desire earnestly greater gifts. And if we go back to chapter 12, we see the greater gifts are those such as are mentioned in Ephesians. Apostleship, prophecy, teaching. Those that are used for the building up of the body of Christ, for the equipping of the body of Christ, for, tra for training them in good works, equipping them for the good works that they have to do. Those are those ones most desired. They're the same ones he mentions in 12. So earnestly desire those gifts that, guess what? Equip the body for the good deeds that they could do. Earnestly desire those. Now, if you earnestly desired those, what do you think you would do? Teaching. I mean, these, these are the ones. Teaching, speaking prophetically the Word of God into people's lives in, within a context. What do you think you would want to occupy yourself with if you desired earnestly these gifts? My guess is you'd probably study your word a lot. You'd probably try to understand the depths of your own heart and you'd probably throw yourself into community to understand people and to be able to identify with these people so that you might have an opportunity for a gift like that. But here's the deal, you still won't have a right to it. You still shouldn't expect that now I've done this so I should get this gift because the Spirit gives as He wills according to the good and perfect will of God. But the great thing is this. As you invest yourself in this Word, desiring earnestly those greater gifts, uh, you're also transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? You also do have that truth in your heart that you might speak that truth forth in love to your brothers and sisters for the edification of the body, that would actually be a path towards wanting to seek the good of the other within this body would be to devote yourself to those things. Now, I will say this. Just because you know this word real well doesn't make you spiritual. I'll say that too. You get me? A fruit of the Spirit is not Bible knowledge. That's not on that list. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, you're probably going to need some of this to love well. I assure you, you're going to. And I'm not diminishing this word by any means whatsoever. But what I'm telling you is the end of all that is love. That's the tangible expression of the work of the Spirit in the lives of His people, seeking after the good of the other. And this brings us to the close, but let me just encourage you that the basis for all of this is that that's the love that you've been shown by Christ who came as God, very God and humbled himself to flesh and became a man and even a servant of men and gave his life on the cross for the good of his people. And so we are compelled as his servants to do the same, a tangible expression of the good news of Jesus Christ that we've experienced, that now we want to share with others. Go and do likewise. Hope to see you at the Memorial of the Maze. Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Thank you for our time this morning to be built up by your word. Thank you for the time to go celebrate the great works that you've done among us this afternoon. Lord, may our celebration, may our praise uh, be pleasing in your sight. May our fellowship be pleasing. Uh, Lord, let us consider to consider how we might stir one another to love and good deeds for the name of Christ. Amen.